Good morning. Today is Friday, April 17th, and uh, we have been making our way through Ezekiel 38 and 39 as part of our uh, look at the sequence of end times events. And the sequence of end times events as I'm presenting them here uh, are, uh, is, is, is a very typical, common understanding of how prophecy unfolds in the last days. It's not universally accepted, but it's also not by any means fringe. Uh, it's pretty mainline, and so, um, you know, and my intention is to sort of be in that place as we make our way through, because, as we mentioned before a few times, prophecy by and large can be a very intimidating subject for a lot of people, and I do think that it's possible for us as average Christians, not just Bible teachers, but the average believer uh, in, in the church seats can become a student of prophecy in their overall pursuit to become a student of Scripture. Uh, because the Bible spends so much time talking about prophecy, it, it's just not a good idea to set it aside because it's, it's ignoring a big part of what God has had to say. It robs us of the ability to really uh, get excited about the fact, uh, about the things it talks about, including the rapture and the second coming, <clears throat> which ought to be exciting ideas for believers in terms of our going to be with the Lord. Um, but also it makes it, uh, when we understand prophecy, it helps us unlock many things throughout Scripture. Uh, again, we don't necessarily understand every single nuance of how all these things will play out. But by and large, the, the idea of these events taking place, and roughly in the order that they will take place, um, and in some ways very specifically the order they'll take place, uh, are very helpful for us to understand and get comfortable with because it helps us understand the whole of Scripture as well. Imagine taking a third of any story out of a book. Well, imagine trying to understand all the rest of the book without a third of it there, 30% or 33%, 33 and a third percent um, being missing from it. Well, if you, if you take that much out of Scripture and sort of set it aside as not being important uh, or just I can't understand it, so why spend time on it? Well, you can imagine that's going to create some issues when it comes to understanding the whole. And so we take time to look at it for all of these reasons and likely many more as we go through it. Hopefully it sparks other uh, reasons why you might be interested in it. Uh, so that said, we got through about chapter, or, uh, verse 6 of chapter 38. I'm not going to study every verse in these two things. I just want to give sort of an overview. But it was instructive for us to go through that because it introduced us to a group of nations that will play a central role in, uh, in this prophecy as it unfolds. And it will unfold actually yet future, and I believe very soon. Now in chapters uh, 38 uh, verses 1 through 6, we again were introduced to a number of nations, primarily uh, what I believe is uh, referred to as, or referring to the nation of Russia and its leader, Gog the leader and Magog the land, uh, to the uttermost parts of the north that will come down, leading a band of nations against Israel, nations including uh, Turkey and Iran and Ethiopia and Libya and parts of Eastern Europe very possibly. Um, uh, um, and, and that kind of a thing. Uh, uh, we mentioned also Sheba and Dedan. Saudi Arabia is the area that that uh, refers to in our modern geography. We mentioned Tarshish and her young lions, which may or may not refer to Britain and thereby potentially uh, her young lions being her offspring, the United States. If we figure in prophecy at all, in any specific sense, that would be the one place that we might point to. But we can't be absolutely certain that it is referring to us. And even if it is, we play a peripheral role, simply standing alongside of Saudi Arabia, sort of rebuking the nations that come against Israel, but not really coming to her aid. 
uh, not fighting against Israel either, but not necessarily defending her. And so it's an interesting thing to consider how we might be in that kind of peripheral position being a superpower, but that is one of those things that we don't fully understand how that might look in those days, though, looking at our current picture, and depending on the various politics of who's leading the country at the time when these things unfold, it's not so hard to sort of piece together what might be the case. And so that being said, that's where we got yesterday. But I just wanted to take a, a quick look at a few verses here that follow that to help us understand for sure that what we are talking about is these nations coming against Israel. It's not just um, that we want to presume that, but we want to see in Scripture itself. And what we do see here, starting in verse 7, is that God continues to prophesy through Ezekiel and says, Be ready and keep ready, you and all you, uh, your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. He's talking about those nations that will gather against the nation that he will clarify here in a moment. Um, in the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from these peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. And you will advance coming on like a storm, and you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. And he uh, oftentimes, as he goes through this passage and throughout the rest of chapter 38, there is this constant reminder that he is talking about those who are gathered from the nations, and eventually he ultimately comes out and says that they are his people, Israel. Essential. Hold on one sec. I had to let the dog out for a second there. So he brings them all together against these people who've been gathered from all the nations and ultimately are his people, Israel. For example, here in verse 16 of chapter 38, uh, they are, uh, we're told that all of them, all of these nations coming with uh, Gog uh, ultimately come against, up against my people, Israel, like a cloud covering the land. So when we see the description of those who are gathered from the diaspora, which took place in 70 AD, the call is that uh, later on down the road, they will all be gathered together again in Israel. They will be his own special people. We did a few podcasts talking about some of these things as well. So just to clarify, these nations come against the nation of Israel. Now notice here, I'm going to jump down to, um, or pick it up here again, uh, in verse 8, where God again uh, goes on, I should say, and says, um, uh, this land which has been a continual pay, a waste, its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. Notice in verse uh, 11, And I say, you will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, and all of them dwelling without walls. This now uh, are those nations coming. And what, what it's saying is that they are recognizing that Israel is dwelling in at least some sense of security, some sense that they are free from having to be in fear. Now, is that a legitimate, genuine position of, of strength where they don't have to be afraid? Could be. Uh, one of the worst kept secrets in the Middle East is that Israel has nukes. So they are the only nuclear power in the Middle East. And so they may feel a certain sense of, of security and knowing that their weapons are, 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 are quite effective. Um, on the other hand, this also may speak of a presumed peace where they feel as though they're at peace, but they're not actually. And so um, it could be either way on that. Um, later on in verse 14, uh, uh, God refers to them as a people dwelling in safety, uh, which again, from their perspective, they may sort of feel like they're secure because of their own strength. But it may also be that God is letting them or is letting Ezekiel know that his people are in fact safe 
not because they're not going to be attacked, but because God, as he often will say throughout the passage, will fight on their behalf. Um, so that being said, um, as we come down to, uh, again, picking up in verse 12, they're coming, as it says, to seize the spoil and to carry off plunder and to turn their hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth. This again is speaking of Israel and the center of the earth may very well just be sort of from God's perspective. He is saying this is the centerpiece of what's going on. And that makes sense because uh, we find out in Zechariah, as we've referenced before, that Jerusalem will be a cup of trembling for all nations. And certainly during this time, um, as, as Israel draws the, uh, these, uh, as these arms, I should say, are, are drawn to go and attack Israel, she becomes the focal point of all of these things. And so they're at the center of God's plan, but they also are the center of attention in national and international affairs during this event. Um, and so uh, here it is, where in verse 13, uh, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and her leaders or her young lions will say to you, have you come to seize the spoil? Have you assembled your hosts to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold and to take away livestock and goods and to seize great spoil? Dogs are particularly active today. Sorry for that little cut there. But there it is Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and her young lions or her leaders, those who are with her. Um, and uh, again, they are not coming to Israel's aid, but they're not necessarily fighting against her. They're just sort of standing there, kind of calling out to those nations that are and, uh, and questioning their motives and what they're doing. And so that said, um, he goes on then to ultimately, uh, as we've mentioned before, uh, as he brings these things together and as he will come to fight on behalf of Israel. Uh, in verse, um, uh, in verse uh, 16, we see the motivation ultimately, the ultimate purpose behind these things is that the nations may know me. And there are a couple of expressions that go throughout this passage, chapters 38 and 39. One of them is in that day, in that day. And God goes on to discuss and describe what he's going to do in that time. Another expression is that they may know me or that they may know that I am the Lord. And that is applied both to the nations as a whole, that the world will see uh, that God is and that God acts, but also for the sake of his own people, Israel, his chosen ones, his own special people, that those who've been living primarily in secular condition for so much of their modern history would also come to recognize that he is the Lord. As a matter of fact, in chapter 39, uh, where, um, uh, where I'm going to read here now for a moment, um, just to kind of pick up and keep moving along, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 39, he continues and says, And you, son of man, again referring to Ezekiel, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, because I am against you, O God, priest, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward. Or I like how the King James actually interprets this, this Hebrew phrase. Uh, it says, I will turn back but the sixth of you. In other words, I will destroy all but a sixth of you. Okay, Very, very uh, insightful idea of, of how God is going to so potently come to the aid of his people, that this entire invading army is ultimately going to be set back and, and ultimately defeated in really royal fashion. And so uh, it goes on, and I will bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. And then I will strike the bow from your left hand and I will make your arrows drop out of your right hand 
and you shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. And I'll give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured, and you shall fall upon the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now, when we see language like um, bows and arrows and that kind of a thing, remember, Ezekiel is talking from his own contemporary perspective. The things that God is showing him either are visions of armies using such weapons, or it may very well be that uh, Ezekiel is seeing things that have not yet been invented in his vision of future events, and he's simply using language he knows to describe them. Um, again, I'll reference Chuck Missler years ago when describing this passage. Uh, said you might consider bows and arrows to be translated in modern uh, language as being launchers and missiles or something like that. The idea that you're launching a projectile from some kind of a launching device. And so don't be um, sort of set back by the, the old nature or the quaintness of the language, but recognize that when Ezekiel's describing this, he's describing warfare and the fact that it takes on a modern version would just make sense. And so um, the last passage here that he says in, in, this, in this section here uh, is, is where I think I'm going to end today. And then tomorrow we'll finish up this part of Ezekiel 38 and th of our sequence of events, uh, wrapping up in, in chapter 39. But in verse 6, he says this, I will send fire upon, Gog, or upon Magog and upon those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, when we read a passage like that, um, in the context of the overall, we understand that God is going to come to the aid of, uh, of his people. But by and large, we tend to think that it's going to be somewhat through military means uh, that Israel has, like in, uh, when they ultimately regain their independence. Um, they, they had tanks, they fought and all this kind of a thing. It was a miraculous victory and clearly God's hand was in it, but yet it was done through very common, visible means, the, the armies and such. Um, in this case, we might tend to think the same thing, but let me suggest something. That, um, that when he says, I will send fire upon Magog and those who dwell securely in the coastlands, uh, it may very well be that God is going to do something dramatic and supernatural in that time. I'm not suggesting I know that for sure. But since his goal is that all shall know that he is the Lord, and as this event takes place closer and closer to ultimately the end, when he wraps things up, it may very well be that he literally acts in a supernatural way to dispel all doubt that he got involved in this conflict on Israel's behalf. Part of the reason I wonder if that could be true, and I just, I wonder that that could be true. I'm not being dogmatic about it, um, but I wonder because uh, when the Antichrist does come, after all this is done and it moves into then, uh, I believe the events here do ultimately do a lot to prepare the world for ultimately receiving the Antichrist, who will not just be a powerful political leader, but he will also unite the world spiritually as well. And he has a false prophet helping him toward that end, as we read about in Revelation 13. And so uh, I wonder if God works so visibly so as to dispel all doubt that God himself has inter intervened on behalf of Israel against mankind's coalescing against her. I wonder if part of the reason why the Antichrist is embraced the way he will be so universally uh, is in part because he will not only declare, and remember, as we talked about, he goes into the temple and declares himself to be God, right? Well, um, it may very well be that the people rally around him because they see him as somebody 
who can help overthrow the real God. And so that spiritual dimension to his ultimate reign in the last final days uh, may very well be in connection to their wanting to prepare for another event like God's intervening in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm not saying I know that for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, again, God's intention in these battles, and certainly in the last days, and they recognize God's hand uh, in, in Revelation 6 through 19 and 20, um, they see him active, and yet they curse him rather than believe in him. And so that kind of rebellion uh, rallied around a man who will, who will marshal them together and stand purportedly stand against God is not a surprising scenario uh, if we're willing to read it for what it just says and not always presume that there's some other way that's going to be interpreted. Again, I'm not being dogmatic about that, but it is something that I wonder about a little bit. could very well be that in the days ahead, we're going to see God work in such clear, dramatic fashion, much like he did in the days of Joshua, much like he did in the days of Hezekiah, much like he did uh, in so many times and examples in the Old Testament. So that said, a thought to leave you with. Let me go ahead and pray. We'll pick it up here tomorrow. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace as always. We thank you for giving us your word and explaining to us those things that pertain to the end of days. Help us to understand them, to be students of them as we become more and more students of your word. Uh, we thank you for giving us this time to spend in your word together. And we pray that it's fruitful, that we might know you and trust you more, more fully, and that we might be excited about the fact that one day your son's gonna come and snatch his bride away, and these things will all unfold. Thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.